Welcome to the Digital Transformer Podcast, your number one podcast on digital innovation, transformation, and venture building. We help entrepreneurs and corporate innovation leaders like you gain the knowledge and skills you need to build the leading digital businesses of your industry. Today, I talked to serial entrepreneur Robert Ermich. Robert went from being a consultant to building one of the fastest growing online portals for mobile phones and contracts, which he later exited to MobileZone. We talk about how he rapidly built up a leading platform in the market dominated by big players, three tips on fostering a strong innovation company culture, and how companies can succeed in the new era of digital marketing. So with no further ado, let me welcome Robert. Awesome to have you, Robert. Give me the context that makes me understand the person you've become in your life. The con oh, that's a tough question to the beginning. Well, <laughs> um, what shaped me, uh, I would always say I was I always had two passions. That was medicine and management. And uh, as I was, uh, I always say I was too stupid to to become a doctor in Germany uh, because my my GPA school, my my GPA at school wasn't good enough. Uh, so at the end, I ended up in business more or less, uh, and this is what got me there. And uh, what then what then shaped me by coincidence, I landed in a private business school at WHU and uh, had a really, really great time there and which really shaped my future in business actually because um, the connections that I made there actually sent me around the world and um, yeah it was that what brought me into my first positions as a founder as a associate with uh, Rocket Internet in the beginning uh, right after my bachelor's and then after doing an MBA thereafter, um, I started uh, with the first company that I helped build, uh, which we then ended up selling to a TV conglomerate. And then I started the first like real own business and uh, hustled there for five years um, to then eventually yeah, come into more and more businesses. So I think that's uh, what kind of shaped me. Super interesting. And I, and I think it's funny enough that you also right now as an angel investor also invested in some sort of med like medical slash for children like these uh, tracking devices, right? So I think like the, it loops all back, which is which is cool to see. <laughs> exactly. Let's maybe dive into your story of founding Dine Handy, which is for for context, basically back at the time was one of the fastest growing online portals for mobile phones and contracts in Germany that you ultimately sold to, as you said, Mobile Zone. What led to the creation of of Dine Handy? Because it's not really a business where in the first place you would say, yes, let's found a marketplace for mobile phones and contracts. Well, the thing was that with the with the first company um, that I was uh, helping to set up and that we sold to um, Seven Ventures, actually, that was uh, Price24, Price24, uh, we saw a lot of potential in the market and we saw a lot more potential than what we did there. And um, I, through the network that I created, especially in marketing uh, and with the support of the telco providers, actually, as well, that believed in the capabilities that I had and that I had shown, we said, hey, there is a lot more potential that we we can that we could use here and there's a lot more that you can do with that product in that market because the entire market was still not really at a level of social media of digital advertising uh, it was a pretty old market hence uh, there was enough space and enough opportunity uh, to actually grow a company this is actually what led to me leaving price 24 and starting on a fresh canvas and 
actually doing the exact same thing, uh, but on a bigger scale. And also what was important for me was uh, that I could move that from Dusseldorf, where I was, to Berlin, because here I had a bigger network um, and I had a bigger reach out possibility to what was back then still in his uh, infancy in digital marketing, um, but the contacts here were a lot better. And what was then the create? What was the major challenge that that you first had to had to overcome and create such a company? I think there was not really big challenges in the beginning. I had to solve a couple of issues. The issue was was uh, the supply chain. So I had to make sure that I had the right possibilities of offers of products uh, in the market and that I had the right setup in the company so that I would have access to enough marketing guys, to enough developers to uh, build a nice product. And fortunately, some of the guys that did our sourcing and fulfillment with the uh, with the former company actually also said like, hey, we we would like to help you because we think we can make this bigger. Um, so I sort of had everything sorted out on that branch. And once all that came into play that I had all my contacts like reaching out saying like, hey, you know what, in marketing, this agency would like to help you. This agency thinks we can make more. And the, on the supply side, I had these guys in the sourcing and fulfillment department that said like, yeah, we, we're going to back you. Then I was like, okay, this is awesome. And then the biggest challenge, uh, I would say, was to come out with a with a big bang to, you know, sort of be on the map um, of all of this. And uh, fortunately, I uh, had a really, really good day at uh, RTL back then at the other TV conglomerate. So Price24, we had seven ventures backing us. We had a huge. So that was the time of like we do media for equity, TV reach for equity deals. And um, I sat down with the with the other guys in Cologne with uh, RTL and they said like, hey, we, look, we don't really do that, but the numbers that you present, the spreadsheet that you present looks compelling. So what we're willing to do is we're willing to give you a huge discount because we're going to see how this goes along the way. And uh, there I had a great position. So we rather quickly, actually, within a couple of months, got the platform ready for a TV launch so that we could handle all the traffic that would come in and everything, that we had like good TV commercials, that we had the brand set up and the brand strategy set up. Um, and then actually like eight months after after founding the company, nine months after founding the company, uh, we hit our first uh, TV commercial, um, which sort of put us on the map. And then TV was sort of like the thing that was the initial wave that then eventually faded while ramping up all the other marketing channels. So that helped uh, in putting the brand out there. So basically, from the get-go, you really had already, let's say, enough traffic on the website through the initial online marketing activities that you ultimately really quickly were able to also get this major TV gig. Exactly. We started with we started with digital marketing first. Uh, back then, it was mainly search and SEO that we that we started with. Um, so search was a was a big part back then, and uh, we started to ramp up uh, and do our quick wins with with SEO. Uh, so we would be in the first couple of pages. We did a couple of deals with with deal platforms and everything um, and affiliate marketing pages. So this was the first channels that we that we used back then. Even in the business plan that I had for the company, social media marketing just didn't exist because nobody knew about it that was in 2014 so that started uh, out a little later and yeah then tv kind of got us the trust so in the beginning it was like okay we're a deal platform we're like this new player not really 100 trustworthy and everything but sort of new and uh, we quickly got 
to that point with TV advertisement to be perceived as this quality player. Wow, if they're doing TV, there must be a big company and so on. Um, so that helped in the marketing mix. And how did you first deal with all these regulations? Because like, I imagine it's like a, it's a like it's a market with big players that is, let's say, very probably not very receptive to suddenly like an external party joining in and saying, hey, we're trying to get our own deals out here, which might be inferior, so to speak, from the eyes of the, well, either phone companies, but primarily of the of the uh, providers, because you probably gave them better deal than a telecom would give a would give someone else, right? Exactly. So how the business ran and how the business worked was we would sort of buy contracts in bulk from the mobile phone carriers and would get a discount from them. And then we had our own fulfillment. So we would buy the phones in bulk from Samsung or Apple or Huawei or whomever, and we would get a discount from them. And as we didn't need that huge margin because we were operating online, we didn't have as much overhead as, as those big players. So we could actually forward that purchasing advantage to the customer. And so that's why we had better deals. So for the telco providers, in the beginning, it was a it was a good game because uh, first of all, they didn't really want to have a too big a too big gap and too big dependency on one player. So having a new player in the market that is that is growing fast would help them not to have too much too much load on one side. And on the other side, we were a trial platform for them um, because if they wanted to test out back then, the mobile phone market was a really dynamic market. So gigabyte numbers in contracts would, you know shape would switch like rapidly so if you like in 2014 if you had 500 megabytes in your contract you had a decent contract now like 500 megabytes is nothing is in a day so they could use us to also try out new contracts and new setups and everything. So we basically helped them to shape their products as well. So that's why we were a good guinea pig for them. And also to hit their numbers, they could we could react a lot quicker than they could in their own way. Because within two days, we would have like four, five, six channels active. Um, whereas Vodafone or a Telecom, it would take them a lot longer uh, to activate the different promotions and the different channels. And they would sort of like, cut into their premium pricing. Um, so we were sort of a marketing tool for them. So ultimately, it boils down to you get, you having had the right contacts in the very beginning and using these contracts uh, or contacts to, let's say, bring both parties together, like offering, let's say, compelling solution to the telco providers and, let's say, fueling it with your knowledge on, on online marketing, which ultimately, as you said, back at the time, didn't really quite exist yet as a big field. Just out of curiosity, how did you go like, why did you say suddenly like, hey, online marketing is the way to go? Because like, if, if no one or if hardly anyone did it back then, why did investors also necessarily rely on that being, let's say, the, the, the way forward? Well, the thing was, uh, we did really well in the channels that we had at a time and the channels that we had at a, t at a time being SEA and being affiliate marketing, uh, we were really good at and we had really, really good partners and there was a lot to, there was a lot to gain there and also these a deal platform like my deals, for example, uh, that came out or even, even Groupon at some point, they, they were good tools to use. However, they were still new at a time. So few players in the market actually knew how to use that in the right way. And I had 
good contacts here in Berlin with companies that uh, were specialized in SEA. So I sat down, actually, like I went into one of these companies and sat down for like three, four weeks and were shattering uh, their best, their best portfolio managers in order to learn and to pick up and to set up our account structure and everything. And I saw that, hey, you got to you gotta move quickly and you got to move with channels that are new because if you can dominate a new channel, then your customer acquisition costs are going to be super small compared to everything else before the channel gets saturated. And then, yeah, social media came into play, which was um, sort of like our thing to to outgrow the entire competition and to test out something new and to be there right on the pulse of the customer and it really was also about what customer do you want to target and our target customer just moved into social media and social media advertisement was the way to go then which is super a super interesting point because like these days there are lots of new channels evolving and so hearing what you say it's super crucial to really move into those channels early on let's say to pioneer them for instance, with the help of, of young startups such as you were back at the time, so that you as a company really gain a lot of, let's say, speed and flexibility, whereas as a founder, it has the advantage that by being that trial platform, it's much easier to sign on bigger deals. Yeah, exactly. What I'd be interested in is you said, when we talked earlier, and, and you said it right now as well, like, it was really crucial to bring the right experts on board early on. Now, as a leader, you both told me back at the time that you got to be respected for your knowledge, but ultimately the goal is to surround yourself by people who are true experts in the field. How did you do that back then? And what would you recommend others like to who seek to do the same? So when, when setting up the company in the beginning, like the first couple of people that I tried to hire were people that were sort of like general managers from a from a personality type and from a skill set type. So that would be uh, the intern in business development, and you would have like three, four, five business development guys uh, that were trying to that were trying to do everything at a time. Because in the beginning, setting up, everybody has to do everything, and everybody is doing everything to a certain level. And then you go with the eighty twenty rule, so everybody that is adaptable and can sort of dive into every topic a little bit will achieve that to a certain level and then as the company grows and as certain functions get more important then you will try to add on a new layer where you get experts um, however even in the beginning if you have those if you have those all-rounder guys working with you it's important that these all-rounder guys get the right steering so that's why i tried to do to give them access to real experts in the field let's say like for me for example like i went into this uh, sea specialty company and i was diving myself into into that topic until i understood it to like let's say 80 percent. and i tried to give everybody else access as well into that in uh, to those experts being it in bi or being it in social media marketing then um, and something like that before then onboarding new people that would actually spearhead the departments into into those ventures. So basically, let's say a way to establish yourself as a leader in that sense is to also, let's say, be a facilitator that, let's say, connects the dots to other people you know so that you can ultimately empower people to, to move forward and to learn quickly. And that then gives them the trust to say, hey, you might not be like a telco executive that has 20 years of on the back of experience, but you know the right people and that ultimately then builds a trust that is needed to really also, let's say, yeah, fuel fuel the company. 
Yeah, exactly. So trying to surround yourself with people that are willing to go forward, trying to surround yourself with people that are intrinsically motivated and then, uh, yeah, don't give them fish, but show them how to fish, you know, um, give them a rod and, and tell them and explain them how to, um, how to fish. So that's uh, sort of what I've uh, tried to do and what I think worked actually out pretty well in the, in the Dine Handy uh, era. Nice. Cool. And moving a bit forward, then you ultimately scaled the company super quickly and sold it off eventually exited it what was the was there like one major challenge throughout the scaling process that you had to overcome i think the major challenge that that we faced back then with Dunhendy was that we needed to that we needed to focus a little more on on our core product so when the Swiss company, the Swiss conglomerate came into play, we were quick to say like, hey, you know, there's so much that we can do. There's so much potential within the entire group, within the entire conglomerate that we could optimize, that we could do. And we lost a little bit of focus on our own product and thought like, hey, uh, let's think bigger. What can we do for the, for the entire group? And we shifted some resources on that. However, at the end of the day, that didn't really, that didn't really pay out because it was a different system and it was different... Uh, uh, and it was a different time back then. So that was, in hindsight, I would say one of the biggest mistakes uh, that we that I did to not be completely focused on our own development. So I think we we lost like a year in development and in development capabilities and in marketing capabilities uh, that we could have used in a better way for uh, for Dine Handy itself. So you spread yourself too thinly, anticipating that several opportunities would come up out of this deal that ultimately didn't exactly. really materialize slash you couldn't really let's say make them work as well as you imagine because you only had limited capacities or resources exactly and it was a different mindset and a different mentality uh, if, if you join a small company with a conglomerate with an investor uh, that has been running the business i mean they had been running a business for i don't know 20 30 40 years which was the same business style as our competitors and we outpaced our competitors uh, super rapidly and we passed them super rapidly so suddenly we were in a situation that these guys that we thought we could change that but we couldn't just change that because uh, there was a reason of why they were on the market for like 20, 30 years and they had their processes and that was not easy, uh, easily changed and not easily done as we as we were used to, like doing, having an idea in the morning and uh, transforming it into a rea reality by the afternoon or by, by late evening or something like that. So that was, that was a paradigm change, which also didn't sit well with some of the teams that we had that we that were working on these issues. So that was because they signed up to work in a startup, you know, they signed up to be right. in a dynamic company with not a lot of red tape or processes, but with uh, quick execution and clear focus on new stuff. And uh, suddenly they were in a, a different situation. So that was something that I should have anticipated before. And yeah, I should have shifted in a different way. How would you, in hindsight, because like, you probably reflect upon this quite a bit, how would you have let this paradigm change way more successfully? Yeah, I would not not have done it at all, to be honest. Like I would have said, okay, uh, this is uh, what we can do. And when somebody asks you, like when, when a big conglomerate says, hey, we sort of invested in you guys because we want your knowledge and everything, then that's okay. And we can make a workshop or two, uh, but we're not going to shift resources uh, onto that project and draw them out from the from the running train um, that we are having to throw it onto a tanker to, to slow them down. So yeah, a clear 
focus on our own capabilities and have other people look into that, which is cool, but don't divert from don't divert from the course. But then ultimately, once you let's say sold the company, you basically like the entire department faced that problem because suddenly they're no longer or they're part of this way bigger tanker, as you said. So the speedboat gets integrated. So I imagine that leads to a lot of frustration. How do you manage that? I don't know. I left the company then, okay. uh, which, is, which is part of the reason. Like I always said, like uh, I'm more of the speedboat kind of guy than the tanker kind of guy. And uh, at the end of the day, like when 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 I did my exit from from Dine Handy, it was also the situation that the Swiss conglomerate behind us actually bought our biggest competitor at the time, and it was clear that we uh, that that we would facilitate some sort of a merger, and that I couldn't be that quick easy deciding person anymore uh, to come up with a with a dumb or not so dumb idea in the morning and have everybody uh, evolve around it during the day um, so that was a that was a big challenge and of course that that creates a cut in the in the company and in the mindset and mentality and everything so that was also part of why I left because the new direction was not necessarily the, towards growth, but it was towards stability and using what we had already achieved and sort of exploring that a little more rather than going into new uncharted territory, which uh, was uh, what I was striving to do. So that's why it was a good point in time to sort of hand that over to a different management style and to a different different path. If that happens, and that happened before with Seven Ventures and Press24 as well, yeah, you will have a transition phase and you will have a phase where some people that are that are used to work in a conglomerate or in a bigger company will stay. And you have people that are hungry for change and hungry for dynamic situations that will ultimately leave the company uh, and will look for uh, and will look for something new. But that's just like a normal process. You will still have a lot of knowledge transfer from the startup to the conglomerate, which is which is good for both sides and which is good also for the people that are that used to work in a dynamic startup to experience the work from the conglomerate and with a lot more organizational structure and everything. But yeah, people will then automatically at some point sort themselves out and whether this is the environment that they want to work in and if this is the pace that they want to work in. I mean, both sides do have advantages as well. So yeah, I think that's just the that's just the way it goes. I think especially like just as a background for, for everyone listening today, what you told me the other day is that you had a very interesting approach when it comes to, let's say, finding those high performers for your organization. You said that you only hired from different cities and created a work environment that basically, let's say, as the Googles do, create a complete home base where free time activities are taking place, where basically all types of human needs can be fulfilled in that work environment so that people will be 100% committed to that, to your company. And I imagine that changes quite a bit once you have then this transition towards a conglomerate. I wouldn't necessarily say that that changes with the transition towards a conglomerate because uh, it really depends on the... It really depends on the team and the office that you're having. And it was really funny because, I mean, this was all pre-COVID. Huh? However, I I had a couple of talks actually this week with people that were complaining about their way to the office, that it's way too far, that it's like complicated on how to get there and everything. And yeah, the last time we spoke, I said, and, and I still pledged that like, 
don't be the satellite. I always said like the people that are hired in the beginning for the core team are the people from outside of the city that come to the city and their and the city and everything else that they do is sort of the satellite, but their world is within the company because this is where they create their social network, this is where they create their work network and this is where they uh, and this is why the location of the office for me is super important. Like we're in the in the heart of Berlin, we have like 100 restaurants within 200 meter uh, radius. We have have a really good connection to the to the subway here also like we're super close to everything and this is really important because people can come easily to the office and they can go from here to everything they don't need to they don't need to have separate stations so we are not that satellite whereas if you have people from the city then they will have their world and then they will go to work as their satellite and this is what i try to try to avoid and funny thing is that even during the change with COVID, with remote work and everything, still there's a lot of people that actually say, and I do have some of the startups um, that I invested in that are running their Berlin operations out of um, out of our office here, uh, that we're all, uh, always subletting like one or two rooms to them. And they say the same thing because it's like a station, it's like a world where you can, where you can meet, where you sort of feel at home. And this is something that was really important to me and, and to my team, because then the team grows better together. They work better together. And it's not about the time that they work and the hours that they spend in the office. It's more about the mindset and about the, the feeling like, hey, we have this like common ground and we can work from that. Which is obviously much harder to create if you're a completely remote company or send everyone in home office um, because then everyone has their small little world, so to speak, at home and just let's say dials into work. Yeah, it is. Um, and, and especially nowadays, I mean, uh, for us, for example, like, we right now use um, we have a PlayStation and we play a lot of FIFA. But this is something, yeah, can you do that remotely? Yes, you can. However, it's not the it's not the same thing if I can uh, if I if I can punch my partner in the arm <laughs> because he's got a goal or something. And then if you're sitting on the couch and it's something, uh, it's just something else. If you're if you're actually here and you can say like, hey, something went well, and you're gonna have beer together or something like that, or you um, have lunch together and you just have a quick barbecue in the office, then then being remote. And uh, even though some people can focus better, I think if you're if you're relying on people and especially in marketing uh, and business development. I do believe that it's important to have an office and to be in the same location because it's more fruitful. If you have other jobs uh, such as key account management or developers or graphics design or um, even content or so, they're, those are jobs that I think can, can be done remotely really well because people can actually focus more on what they're doing and are not distracted. However, in situations where distraction and cross-communication across the table is fruitful, because it just enriches the uh, the ideation process. I think it's yeah, it's imperative to have an own office uh, and to have people meet and to have people connect with each other on a different level, uh, so they can actually achieve to read their minds. That's a very very interesting approach. Looking back at your journey, which one tip would you give founders and corporate innovation leaders? who also seek to build industry-defining products, platforms, services? 
Well, I would say there's there's three to four things to be to be looked upon. First of all, build a customer-centric product. So what we tried to do with Dine Handy was we put the Dine, the you uh, and the customer in the focus and everything that we did was around the customer. So we didn't really focus on, on price, even though we had a good pricing, but we always had a premium pricing towards all the other deal platforms, which we could pull through because we were focused on the customer and what the customer needs or we were telling the customer what he needs even if he if they didn't know it so that was the first thing like try to build a product that is really making the customer believe that it's built around the customer and that leads to the second point like get the right message like get the right branding get the right product market fit and get the right market message so you need to you need to send out the right the right message the right visuals the right the right commercials to the right platforms and then most importantly uh, data is king even uh, or especially now that with iOS and everything um, tracking has become more and more difficult these days it's imperative that you that you set up your business um, so you can actually track all the data as best as possible in order to know what channels are working and what you can scale and what you cannot scale. And and lastly, like, yeah, your team is really imperative because at the end of the day, these are the guys that are that are building your company because you're not building the company. You're building the team and you're throwing in ideas, but the company building is done by the entire team. So I think having the right setup of a team in any company is one of the most important things, being it startup or being a conglomerate. I mean, why do conglomerates fail in dynamic things, in new ventures and everything? Because they don't have the right team with the right setup, with the right minds, with the right ideas, because maybe they're not giving enough freedom or enough leeway. So there's too much red tape or something like that, or not the right incentives. And so this is, I think, the points that I would give um, for every founder and uh, every conglomerate out there. Like, yeah, build a good product, have the right brand and the right communication and have the right team. And ultimately, I think that all starts with, let's say, having a really good customer understanding because you can only really build a customer-centric product once you really hone in and, let's say, live the life of your customers so you know exactly what every, let's say, waking minute of their day they're thinking about and then do you also test the communication with your customers like do you also do this like that's a typical agile sprints and in, in the way that you just like let's say create a brand message get people into the company three four five people to test it with say how does that resonate and then or do you approach that differently do you go the data-driven way that you described before we went a lot of the data-driven way. So we had a couple of uh, hypotheses uh, amongst the team. That's why, for me, it was always important to talk to the team. I have a really strong opinion if it comes to marketing and if it comes to, especially if it comes to the brand. Um, so we had our brand really, really well developed and defined. Yet I was challenging myself and I was also challenging the team a lot of times with ideas. And there were a lot of days where uh, people told me like, dude, you have a completely idiotic idea. This is never <laughs> going to fly. And I told them, well, can you tell me why? And if they could tell me why, then I was like, okay, makes sense. And if they could not tell me why, because they just had a different point of view, I was like, well, then let's test both ideas. And we run that at scale in some, in some visuals. And then we see what works and what works better and what works, uh, works not so well. And I think being open and challenging yourself and the team all day long is, uh, is what, makes that, what makes that work. I think it's important to stay true to your, to your brand and to your brand communication and the development that you have done. 
done. However, within those boundaries, go wild and test everything that works to the customer. Just like, you know, have this like one red, red line that you follow. And this is what actually made us really successful um, in the way that if we could integrate it into our structured brand communication, then everything was everything was working out. Super interesting. And and last point with regards to the the team setup, you said it's super crucial to have the right team set up, the right incentives. How would you, let's say, how do you go about building that up? (laughs) (laughs) It's a tough one. (laughs) I go uh, to the right incentives. Well, as I said, like I needed to, um, and I wanted to create a space for the entire team so everybody could feel could feel at home and everybody could feel could feel well in the um, in the office so I always tried to take away the the payment portion of it meaning that we paid at market or a little over market but I just never wanted to have payment as an issue but I wanted them to to be happy in the situation and in the position that they were and I told every employee on their on their interview and on the feedback cycles as well I was like look there are times when you're when you're done with work um, and done in a way of like you don't really feel it anymore. And there can be a week when you have to motivate yourself to get up in the morning to work or to get to the office. And that's okay. That's completely fine. That happens to everybody. But if you have more than two weeks in a row where you have to force yourself in the morning to get up to work or to get up and go to the office, uh, then we should talk. And then we should talk, meaning we should figure out why that is is that a personal issue is that a is that a work field issue is that a company issue uh, try, to try to identify where it comes from and try to identify how to solve it meaning we had a lot of transition in the company we had people that would go from customer care into business development or into graphics design or into content we had people from content that would move to that would move to a product and uh, so we had a lot of shift there because and I think that was important you need to keep people happy and challenged in what they're doing if they're bored or if they're frustrated with their work, um, it will reflect on their coworkers and it will affect the entire team. So that's why I always try to motivate people in that way that I said like, hey, everything's solvable and we can talk about everything. And uh, sometimes, you know, it doesn't work out because um, either the position was not what they envisioned or the team was not what they envisioned or, or it just didn't, didn't fit in or maybe they don't like being at an office that is like, you know, happy and going crazy all the time or they need more structure and then it's like hey okay maybe this is not the right company but it's not that hey i need to fire you but it's like hey what does motivate you and even if they leave they will say like hey this was a great experience because they identified that i'm not the right fit and they helped me find the right way for me so they will even spread a good word about your company and about your management style and this is what then also keeps the keeps the good people coming in that's this notion of a sports team right you're constantly scouting and your your employees so your players they're also constantly scouting and that should actually be something that's encouraged because as you said like it, it fosters more motivation and also transparency in a way what's out there in the market and sometimes people might realize hey like i thought like this might not be a good company to work for but then i look around and realize okay there's not much better stuff out there if at all it's it might be worse so i think it's a very very good thing to have this this transparency and this challenging each other as well and in a transition period like if someone for instance transition from content creation to a business development how did you then facilitate that because i like the fear a lot of people will have is to say listen that person doesn't really have the expertise i need right now in order to do the job properly so 
how can you, let's say, empower that person to, to make that transition happen? Works better in office than remote, I can tell you that. So what we, <laughs> what we did back then um, was that a person that would, let's say, work in customer care would still have 50% of the workload there and then would um, sort of shadow somebody from the other team for, let's say, a week or two. And they would get in more into those processes and uh, would get more into, into a deeper level of detail in that. And then both sides would actually say like, hey, you know what, this is something that I want to pursue more. And the other side from the product team would say like, hey, you know what, like from shattering and from the questions that we're getting, we can actually really use that person in this in this capacity. So it's up on the managers of these different different units to see where they could fit in and at what level they could fit in so everybody profits from it and everybody could learn from it i mean it doesn't always work because not always you have vacancies in other departments however keeping that cross communication up so for example in the all hands that we had we would also uh, we would always say like hey this is the biggest achievement and the biggest pitfall in this department this is the biggest achievement in that department so everybody in the company would actually sort of understand what the different departments were doing and what their job looked like so it was easier to then facilitate a transition because i would encourage the people to have lunch or do some games or something uh, with the other with the other department so everybody you know sort of knew what they were doing because in especially in conglomerates you see that a lot that the graphics department has zero clue what content is doing or zero clue what customer care is actually doing and this is something that for me was always really important to have that transparency transparency amongst all departments awesome cool and looking into the future, what do you think are the major challenges of companies that want to create other digital consumer platforms? I think data and the involvement of new marketing channels is, uh, is the biggest issue because the market at the moment is moving really, really fast in terms of, uh, in terms of marketing tools uh, and in terms of marketing platforms. Like, where do I advertise nowadays? Do I use, do I use TikTok? Do I use Facebook? Do I use Instagram? Do I use something completely else? What's happening to TV advertisement? What's happening to the out of home advertisement world? Do I need that? What's the right point? I think this is a really, really tough decision at the moment to use the right, to use the right channels. And with that comes the possibility of, of tracking. I think. From a marketing perspective, we were on a, in a better world three to five years ago when we could basically track everybody and everything. And I think a lot of other countries have a lot of advantages there. However, I do understand the need for, for privacy and everything. And it's a fine line in between customized marketing then and um, actually behavioral changing through marketing and through your uh, and through your feeds and everything so there's always two sides to that however as an uh, as an analysis um, it's yeah it's become really tough at the moment um, and i think these are these are the challenges so what channel to use how is this going to shape in the future like what creatives do i need for that and then, yeah, tracking, tracking the right channel and making the right decisions on what to scale and how to scale. Which basically boils down again to the question or to what you said earlier. It's about customer centricity and about, let's say, being strong on your messaging. But then within the constraints, really, let's say, going well, trying it out, talking to experts as well as you did uh, throughout your career. And then you can nail those channels as well. Awesome. It was a great pleasure to have you, Robert. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us today. And I wish you all the best with your new venture on truck. 
Thank you. Yeah, hope to see you soon. Thank you. Have a great day. It was a pleasure.